text this morning is in the, uh, the book of Acts. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and I'll make sure that one of our men provides you with one. Right over here and right over there. Thank you so much. Book of Acts, chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 1 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would give us the boldness of Peter and John. Lord, we are common men and common women and common children. There is nothing special about us. There's nothing extraordinary, Lord, but you are. And Lord God, just as the, the leaders recognized that these men had been with Jesus because of their boldness, Lord God, I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that those around us would see that we have been with someone extraordinary, with, some, with someone wonderful who has changed and impacted our life. 
Lord God, I pray for that. And I pray for the preaching of the word and that your spirit would guide Steve this morning. And I pray for our ears and our hearts that as we, as we hear the word, as we take it in, Lord, that we would understand it and that we would heed it and that we would believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Acts, in many ways, is a book of beginnings. There's lots of things that begin in Acts. We see the beginning of the church age. Now that Jesus has ascended, the church age has begun. And we see the beginning of believers being infilled with the Holy Spirit. Um, we see the beginning, we will see the beginning of the missionary movement where the gospel would be, begin to spread worldwide. And we see something else begin in today's passage. Today's passage is the beginning of something else. Something else is launched. And what we see is that this is the beginning of persecution. This is the very first resistance that the gospel message receives in the New Testament. Other than what the Jewish leaders did to Jesus himself, now that in the church age, this is the first resistance that the church is beginning to experience to the gospel message. Up to this point, they've been accepted, but now persecution begins. Now, when we planned out our series, He Reigns, we just kind of laid it out. I did not know it was going to fall, that this passage would fall on today. That's a God thing, that God puts this passage about persecution on the day that is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. So, I want us to look at this passage in light of persecution and people being uh, hounded and, and belittled for their faith. And it's not something we worry about that much here in the United States, but we do face some opposition in the United States, and we need to know how to handle ourselves when we face opposition. Now, let me give you some facts about persecution. Right now, there's more, well, there have been more than 43 million Christians killed for their faith since Jesus ascended. And that's just a guesstimate. Uh, it's been estimated that more Christians have been martyred in this past century, in the last century, than the prior 1900 years combined. So this beginning of persecution has just continued to increase even to today. And we are now on pace in this century to outdo last century as far as the amount of Christians being persecuted for their faith. There were 26 million Christians killed in the past century for their faith. In 1926 alone, there were 12 million killed by the Soviets as they tried to secularize Russia. 12 million Christians wiped out. More than 200 million Christians in over 60 nations face persecution each day, and 60% of these are children. There are between 150,000 to 165,000 Christians killed each year, and the pace continues to increase each year. Christians today are the most persecuted group in the world, and persecution, as I said earlier, is on the rise. Literally hundreds of thousands of people today are being killed, brutalized, sold as slaves, imprisoned, tortured, threatened, discriminated against, and arrested solely because they are Christians, and many of them are simply being killed. And they could all, or most of them, could avoid this treatment if they would simply do one thing. Deny the name of Jesus Christ. That's all they got to do to get out of the pain and the suffering and the torture. Just deny the name of Jesus Christ. But they won't. They cannot. They're like Peter. They cannot help but speak of what they have seen and heard. 
They've experienced the love of Christ. Christ now lives within them. The Holy Spirit resides within them. They cannot help but be a believer. So they can't deny Christ. And they won't deny Christ. They would rather die. So we come to today's passage, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. We're in a series called He Reigns. I've entitled today's message, The Power to be Bold. As we look at this boldness of Peter and John before the Jewish rulers, the same rulers who had crucified Christ have now bring them in to the courtroom. And I want us to look at their boldness. We look at verse 1 here and it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So they're preaching and they're teaching. Now you remember, we're back in our Acts series now. I know we took a two-week break, but if you've forgotten over three weeks what was going on, they, were, they had healed a crippled man who was outside of the temple at the gate, the beautiful gate of the temple. He's outside the temple. They're walking in. He's begging for alms. Uh, Peter turns, looks at him. The Holy Spirit has come upon Peter in some sort of way. He recognizes there's something God wants him to do. He looks at this man. The man thinks they're going to give him some, some, uh, some money. He holds out his hand. They say, Peter says, we don't have silver or gold, but what we do have, we'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And the man stands up and walks. Well, of course, this created quite a commotion because this man starts leaping and hooping and hollering. He's a charismatic, all right? He's excited, as we all should be when Jesus does something in our life. Us Baptists need to loosen up a little bit and get a little bit more excited sometimes. God does some great things, and we should be joyful when God does great things in our life. Well, this guy's excited. He's dancing around. They go into the temple. He's, he's praising the Lord. He couldn't come into the temple before because he was lame. Now he's whole, and he can come into the temple. So he's in there. A crowd begins to gather around Peter, and of course, Peter's a good preacher. When a crowd gathers, he's got to preach. So he begins to preach, and he's giving his message, and he gets interrupted here. In verse 1 of chapter 4, by these Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were another one of the religious and political parties in, um, in Jewish life of that day. Now, you're familiar with the Pharisees, because that's the ones Jesus was usually kind of battling with. But the Sadducees were the other main group. There were some other groups as well. There were, there were Essenes and Zealots and uh, Herodians and other groups. But these were the, the main groups. And the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, they were more the aristocrats. Okay, they... They controlled the, the priesthood in the temple. Uh, they controlled, therefore, the courts. And um, they were theological liberals. They didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe, really, in miracles. Uh, they didn't believe in, um, in the sovereignty of God. There were lots of things they denied. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and they kind of rejected the rest. And, and so they were, they were theological liberals of their day, and they were also political um, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they just kind of uh, accommodated to the Roman government of the day. They weren't going to try to rub the Romans the wrong way. So whenever something began to happen, they might think, wait a second, the Romans might get upset about what's going on here. We need to, we need to put this down. They were that kind of group. They were accommodating to the Roman government, and they were theologically liberal. Verse 2 says they became greatly annoyed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection from the, from the dead. So there's two things here that really bugs these guys. Uh, it says they were greatly disturbed. They were annoyed that, one, that these two guys are preaching, teaching. I mean, who gave them the right, these two fishermen, to come into the temple and begin to teach? That's the first thing that annoyed them. Because the Sadducees and the Pharisees, all the rulers of the people, they wanted to have control over what was taught to the people. 
talked about that a little bit last week. The last two weeks we talked about the five solas. Because God's people have a right to read God's word for themselves and to experience God themselves. And, and these people, uh, these, these fishermen were out there teaching. And who authorized them to do that? That's the first thing that annoyed them. Second thing that annoyed them is that they were preaching, teaching the resurrection from the dead in Jesus. Remember, these Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And they certainly didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. So this was really bugging them. And therefore, they go and arrest them. Verse 3 says they arrested them and put them into custody. Okay? Does, they didn't just walk up. The word arrested means they laid hands on them. That means they went up and they grabbed them and yanked them and took them into custody. They didn't go up and say, hey, hey come with us, please. All right? They, wasn't, this wasn't a nice little pleasant experience for Peter and John. They were grabbed and taken into custody and put into jail overnight as they awaited uh, a hearing. But I love this passage because it says here, there's this little part here in verse 4 that you may skip over if you're reading the whole story, but don't skip over verse 4 because it says this, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now you remember on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. So what he's telling us here, now add to that the people that were saved in this second sermon of Peter's, and now you got 5,000. So about 2,000 people came to believe in Christ now at this incident. So Peter's preached two sermons and had 5,000 converts. That's pretty good, all right? That's pretty impressive. So what I want us to see here in verse 4 is that you can put God's messengers behind iron bars, but you can't put the message behind iron bars. It will accomplish what it has been sent out to do. The persecuted church around the world is being, the oppressive governments and oppressive people groups are trying to crush the church, but they can never crush the message. Matter of fact, the more the church is persecuted, the more the message flourishes. Historically, we see that. And so we see here, they put these guys behind iron bars, hoping that they can get a little bit of control over this situation. But the message continues because Isaiah 55, 11 says, God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will always have its success. So on the next day, we see that the rulers and the scribes gather together in Jerusalem for a Sanhedrin um, meeting, a, a meeting of the Jewish court, really. And so now it includes the Pharisees and other parties there as well. So they gather together in Jerusalem the next day, uh, put these guys in their midst. The, the Sanhedrin was about 71 Jewish leaders, 70, including the high priest, which made 71 Jewish leaders in a semicircle, and they put the accused right in the middle of them there. And I don't know if this poor beggar guy was put in jail with them or not, but it says here later in the text that he was standing there with them. So this guy might have spent a night in jail simply because he was healed. Because these guys wanted to put an end to all of this. You see, that's how persecutors work. They don't just persecute the messenger. They persecute those who are beginning to be contagious and catch the message. No, 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 no. We've got to put them down, and we've got to put them down, and we've got to put them down. That's why children are persecuted too. All around the world. And so this guy was probably put in jail with Peter and John, and they put them in their midst. Now what I want us to see this morning from Peter and John's example, I want us to learn how to handle opposition to our faith. Okay, so the, your notes, it says a believer should handle opposition to his faith by, and I'm going to give us a few points. The first thing I want us to see is by relying on the Spirit for power and guidance. Verse 8 says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. 
You see, there's no reason beyond the presence of the Holy Spirit in Peter's life to explain how on earth this man is doing what he's doing now. Because you remember Peter? You remember Peter on the night Jesus was crucified and things didn't quite go the way he wanted them to go? After he hacked off one guy's ear and, and he realizes we're not gonna, this isn't going to be turning into a, what I think it's going to turn into. Jesus isn't going to be this military revolutionary like we all thought he was going to be. Instead, he's now been arrested and he's probably going to be tried. and He's probably going to be killed here in a little bit. And Peter kind of quietly, along with John, follows behind. And, and they get inside the inner court of where, Pete, where Jesus is being tried, probably the very same, very same location here. Jesus is being tried, and Peter's sitting outside where there's a campfire going. And a little servant girl comes up and says, hey, aren't you with, with Jesus? And Peter denies it not once, but three times. He cowers before a, a lowly servant girl and a bunch of people sitting around a campfire. And now here he is with this boldness speaking to these same leaders that had crucified his Lord. The difference is the Holy Spirit. Jesus had predicted that those who follow him would be persecuted, and he had also told them that those who are persecuted would have to rely on the Holy Spirit to help them when it happened. And there's multiple passages where Jesus says this. Let me give us one. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is taking over. Now I want to kind of illustrate this for, for the kids this morning. And... I, I, I give a disclaimer, this illustration may go bad, and if it is, it'll be messy, and we'll clean it up later. All right. Okay, I want these matches here to represent persecution, okay? Let's see if I can light one over here. What's going to happen if I hold this balloon over the match, kids? It'll, okay, let's see what'll happen, ready? I don't think I have to get it too close. Ooh, there we go. Wow, that shot pretty high. So, and it blew it out, blew the match out for me too. Pretty cool. Okay, didn't even have to touch the balloon. It just, poof, just pops because the heat. Okay, and that's like persecution. Okay, persecution is a fire that comes upon the church, upon God's people. Now, I've got another balloon over here, and you'll understand why I have the disclaimer. All right. And it is a water balloon. <laughs> All right. Okay, D, I want you to sit underneath this water balloon as I... All right. Oh, man, I just jumped, dropped a bunch of matches. All right. Yes. And now my match is wet. There we go. All right. Okay. Now, <laughs> we'll see here. All right, I'm going to hold this. It's not popping it. Why? It's got, well, and the persecution died out. Look at that. <clears throat> Let's try it again. Should I try it again, or should I just say, hey, that was good? <laughs> I can't hold the balloon over it well. All right. 
Okay, I can get it just as close as I got the other one, and it won't do it. Why? Because it's got water in it. Okay, and if you want to know the scientific explanation, the cold water inside the balloon absorbs that heat. It just absorbs that heat and keeps the balloon from popping, okay? And, uh, <laughs> and so with the other balloon that didn't have anything in it, all that, the balloon itself, the, 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 it took all the heat, and it couldn't take it, and it just popped. And you know what? If we're going to go into the world and face the opposition that God didn't say we might have, but Jesus promised we would have if we're going to be his followers, then we've got to have a filling of the Holy Spirit. We, the Holy Spirit has to reside in us. Sometimes you hear of people being persecuted, and they were camped. Throughout history, you can look at the, look at the historical books and look, at, look at, um, at, at the persecution of the church, and, and sometimes they bring 50 or 60, a whole church in, a group of people about our size, and say, okay, we're going to put all of you guys in front of the lions to eat you, Unless you recant. And there may be a couple of people that say, I'm, that's, I'm recanting. But the other 48 would stay and die. The 48 that stayed and died were the ones that were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were willing to endure the persecution. And so I want us to also see here because of the tense that's used, the word that's used here when it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, it's in the passive voice, which means that Peter had to yield to the Spirit's control. So Peter here had to yield to the control of the Spirit by being absolutely obedient to what God wanted him to do. That's being yielded to the Holy Spirit. You cannot rely on the Holy Spirit unless you are obedient. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And so we had to make a choice to share in the suffering that we're going to be willing to face the opposition and we're going to be obedient to say what God wants us to say and we're going to rely on, we're going to hope in, we're going to trust in, we're going to have faith in God to give us the strength through His Holy Spirit. Now the second thing I want us to see here, it may be kind of subtle, but I want you to notice it because it's important when we face opposition. A believer should handle opposition to his faith by treating our opponents with respect and courtesy. Look at what Peter says here. He sa it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. This is a formal greeting that he's giving them. He could have said, you know, something like, um, You power-hungry, politically motivated cowards. Okay, he didn't say that. He treats them with respect, with honor, and dignity, even though he's being treated unfairly. You see, this is a tough one for us Christians because sometimes we get treated unfairly or maybe society makes certain decisions that we don't like and we're we think it's unfair, we think it's unfair towards believers, and we get angry, especially here in the United States because we think we're entitled to get angry. Now, I'm going to get angry about this. Instead of treating our opponents with respect and with dignity, Paul did this. Uh, if you read Paul's uh, accounts of some of his trials in Acts chapter 24 and in Acts chapter 26, he speaks to the governor Felix and to Agrippa with great uh, honor and respect. Matter of fact, he catches himself in Acts chapter 23. Listen to this. This just shows Paul was human. Okay, Acts chapter 23, 1 through 5 says, this is Paul looking intently at the council. Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He's, he's meeting before the same council that Peter and John are meeting before. 
And the high priest Ananias commanded that those who stood by him strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Then those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul gets struck in the mouth, and he says, You whitewashed wall! And just kind of lashes out. Now, probably... Most scholars believe Paul had an eye condition. There's several hints to that in Scripture. That maybe his eyesight wasn't good. So he just sees all these blurry guys in robes, right? And, and he, start, he lashes out at this guy, and then he realizes, oh, that's the high priest. And he backs off and says, hey, I didn't realize that that's the high priest. I know I shouldn't talk that way. And so as believers, when people persecute us, when people revile us, when people make fun of our faith or whatever, we have to learn to handle ourselves with respect and honor and to treat our opponents with dignity. Next thing I want us to see is we need to allow our actions to speak for themselves. Acts chapter 4 verse 9 when he says, he kind of, he I almost think kind of laughingly says, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, I mean he's saying, you know, if you're upset, if we're being persecuted because we did a good deed, then bring it on. Bring it on. As believers, if people are going to revile us and make fun of us and, and treat us ugly because we're out in the community doing good deeds, bring it on. Bring it on. Let that speak for itself. The problem is, is when we're not doing the good deeds, that's where the world doesn't see it. They see hypocrisy. They see a church that sits around and does nothing. They see a church that just kind of turns a blind eye to needs. They see a church... I know not our church, but they, people will just label all churches together. They see a church picketing a funeral with signs that says, God hates gays. They see that, and the, the deeds don't speak for themselves. People say, well, those people, those people deserve to be persecuted. They deserve to be put down. But as true believers in Christ, like Peter and John, our deeds should speak for themselves. There should be nothing we should have to hide before our persecutors, before our oppressors. Nothing we should have to hide. What we do, how we act, what we do in the community should speak for itself. First Peter 3, 13 through 17. Peter, same person here, he wrote this. He said, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, like we just talked about, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better for you to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." Guys, if the, if the world is going to make fun of believers, if the world is going to persecute believers, let them do it because we're doing good. Let them do it because our words are pleasing words, that we're treating our opponents with respect. Don't let them look at us and see hypocrisy, to see ugliness come out of our mouths. I see it too much. I see Christian leaders on TV sometimes say stuff. I'm like, why? Why on earth do you want to give that sort of ammunition to the world? Why say ugly things? We should be above that as believers. And our actions should always be good deeds 
so that when the world looks at us and hates us because we love Christ, then let that be the only reason they hate us. Our deeds should speak for themselves. Good deeds that give glory to God. When they see your good deeds, may they give glory to your Father in heaven, is what Jesus said. Finally, I want us to see a believer should handle opposition to his faith by seeing and seizing it as an opportunity to explain the gospel. Peter here in verses 10 through 12, he says, Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love Peter. He just takes advantage of every opportunity he gets to say that. We've heard that same thing over and over and over again in Acts. Because every time Peter gets an opportunity to say, hey, Jesus is salvation, he says it. Jesus is the way, he says it. Because he has an opportunity, he sees this oppression as an opportunity. Opposition to the gospel is simply opportunity for the gospel to be shared. Let me say that again. Opposition to the gospel is simply opportunity for the gospel to be shared. But we have to be bold and we must show respect and our good deeds must speak for themselves. That's what opens up the door for us to share the gospel. Luke chapter 21 verse 12, Jesus again talking about talking about persecution. He says, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. This will be our opportunity to bear witness. And Peter takes advantage of that opportunity. There's kind of a play on words here. The word to be saved can be used in, in the Greek to talk about healing physically or spiritually. So, so Peter talks about how this man has been made well. He has been saved. And then he goes on to talk about how we all need to be saved. You seeing this lame man who's walking now, he's been saved. He's been made whole is what the word really means. He's been made whole physically, but I want to talk to you about something we all need to be made whole because we're all sinners. And so he goes into a gospel presentation here. He has no fear of confronting and saying the hard truths. He has no fear of telling these men, hey, by the way, this is the Messiah in Psalm 118.22 that's prophesied about, the cornerstone that was rejected. Oh, and by the way, you guys are the ones who rejected him. He has no problem saying that. See, in our sharing of our faith sometimes, because we're scared of men more than we're scared of God, we're scared to say difficult things of the gospel. We're scared to say that, yes, oh, you are a sinner. I'm sorry to let you know this, but you're a sinner. And one sin is sufficient to send you to hell. We're afraid to say that, because that's not nice to say. How can you do that? How can you go up to someone and tell them they're going to hell? Who are you to judge? I'm not anybody to judge. God's the judge. And the fact of the matter is, we're all sinners. And if God's a just judge, then we all deserve hell. And there's only one way to get out of hell. But we're afraid to say those kind of things to people. Because we're afraid we're going to get reviled. We're going to get judged. We're afraid. And we fear men more than we fear God too often. But not Peter here. And again, the Bible's his authority. He goes to Psalm 118.22. That's where this, this passage about the cornerstone is from. Again, the Bible has authority. Don't, don't trust in your own ability to come up with things to say. Have Scripture in here so that when you have the opportunity to share your faith, you have something to say. Otherwise, just be quiet. Have the Word of God and be ready to speak the Word of God because the Word of God is the power. The gospel message is the power to save. 
Not your intellect or your charm. Okay, some of you guys are much more charming in here than I am. Okay, and you can get a crowd around you and you can make friends with people. For me, it like takes six months to make a friend. Okay, but some of you guys in here, you know, you, you, you walk into a room and people are like, you know, just wanting to be your children's godfather or whatever. I don't know. They just, they love you. They oh, that's not me. It takes me a while. Okay, but some of you guys have that charm and don't rely on your physical attributes and your personality when it comes to sharing the gospel. It's insufficient. You've got to have the word of God in your heart and in your mind to be able to share. That's where the power comes from. And of course, again, Peter's points directly to the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ. He also kind of gives a response at the end when he says that there's no other name by which we may be saved. It's an opportunity for them to respond. Because he changes his, he's talking about, he's talking about all of us now. There's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. You rulers, you 71 men who are judging me, and this crippled man, and my buddy John here. There's no other name, all of us. And so he wants to give them an opportunity to hear and respond to the faith as well. So all we can do when our opponents are oppressing us is to share the gospel and let our good deeds stand for themselves and to be the kind of people that Peter and John are in this passage. I want to give us a bottom line and conclude our, our message here. Bottom line. Those who oppose us should be astounded by the boldness and the wisdom that comes from the abiding presence of Christ in our lives. Boldness. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They see this boldness and it blows them away. This is Holy Spirit power. Remember they asked earlier, by what power? By what power and what name? They're seeing the power. This boldness, and it's blowing them away. And they called them uneducated, common men. Literally, uh, it means that they didn't know the letters. Now, I don't believe here that Peter and John were illiterate. I believe what they mean here is that these guys are uneducated in the sense that they didn't grow up sitting at the feet of any rabbi. How do they know this Old Testament stuff, this Psalm 118? They didn't grow up at the feet of any rabbi. They haven't studied in the Sadducees' rabbinical schools or, or the Pharisees. Or Who are these guys? To be saying what they're saying. They're uneducated. How do they know the scriptures? And then he calls them common men. These were just citizens. These were just fishermen. Second class citizens. Who are they to be, to be saying these sort of things? This is the same attitude that they said about Jesus too. Remember they would revile Jesus because he was from Nazareth. Or he was from Galilee. Same attitude that these men had. But. The spirit-enabled wisdom of God defies and befuddles man's wisdom and learning. I'm going to give you a passage to go look at when you get a chance. We don't have time to read it this morning, but 1 Corinthians 1, 18-29. Go look at that passage concerning the wisdom of God compared to the wisdom of man. Knowing that we can have peace in Jesus, that we that he's there with us, that the Holy Spirit is guiding us, gives us the power to face the opposition in this world. Again, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus says, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. But the key thing here I want us to focus in on as we finish this passage is Acts chapter 4, 
verse 14, and it says, And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do people recognize that you've been with Jesus? Do people recognize that you've been with Jesus when you're out and about during the week? Do they recognize something different about you? That there's an abiding presence within you? God's Holy Spirit given to you by Jesus, that's how we abide in Christ? Do they recognize that? When you're reviled and people make fun of you for your faith, do they see Jesus in the way you respond? That's the question for us. These leaders here, they could not deny the miracle. They could not deny the power. Nor could they deny that these men had been with someone. They had been with Jesus. And so they, they finish by giving them kind of a warning here. I'm going to cut out the last page of my sermon here. They give them a warning. And they can't really do anything to them. I want you to notice who these men fear. What are they thinking about when they're trying to figure out what to do? They're worried about what the people are going to do out there. They hear the people praising God and they're like, the people. We can't, can't do anything to them because of the people. And plus the evidence doesn't, doesn't go against them because actually this man's walking. Okay, so what do we do here? See, they fear men more than they fear God. They fear men more than they fear God. And we've got to make it up in our minds. Who are we going to fear? Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill you. Fear him who can throw you into hell. Don't fear those who can destroy your body. Fear the one who can throw you into hell for all eternity. Fear God. And these men, all they feared was mankind. So they, give, they make a precedent here. They can't really do anything to him. But I want you to notice, in the book of Acts, persecution gets worse and worse and worse and worse, even to today. And it starts by little erosions of freedom. They set a precedent here. They say, don't ever speak of this man's name again. And by making that judgment, they've set a precedent. Now, the next time these guys speak about Jesus, they can take further action. That's how persecution works. Wake up. That's how it works in this nation too. Now, I usually don't mix politics with preaching, and I very much avoid it. But I want to tell you something. We have to be careful because things erode slowly. Very quietly, very behind the scenes, a couple of weeks ago, a little law was passed, tapped onto a bigger law, which funded our troops. Everybody wants that, so that got a big vote. But there was a little law, very controversial law, attached to it called hate, hate crimes legislation. And in the hate crimes legislation, it's kind of like this passage here. It doesn't outright say that Christians cannot say bad things against homosexuals. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say you can't preach against homosexuality. It just gives a little bit of a precedent so that it can be interpreted a little bit bigger the next time and a little bit bigger the next time. And that's how it starts the exact same legislation with the exact same language was passed in Canada and in many countries in Europe. And today there are preachers in prison in Canada because they preach through Romans. They preach through the book of Romans and got to the part where God says it's wrong for a man to have unnatural relations with another man. It's simply wrong. It doesn't mean we don't love people. We're not going to take signs out and say, yo, you're a horrible person. We're going to say we love you with the love of Christ. And we want to help you the best we can for the glory of God. But I will preach what the Bible says because I fear God.
God more than man. I fear God more than man. I fear God more than man. And we all have to fear God more than man, even if it means we spend the rest of our lives in jail like millions of believers are doing right now around the world, which we prayed for this morning. It's simply that. And America's not there yet. But one precedent, followed by another precedent, followed by another precedent. It's not unthinkable that we can be there. We can. So decide now while it's easy, folks. Who are you going to fear? Man or God? Decide now while it's easy. Because there's millions of believers around the world. I can't even tell you because we've got children in the room. Some of the things that are going on as we speak to believers around the world. Horrible, horrible things. So as we close the message this morning, let's have those believers in our hearts and in our minds as we thank God for our freedom and as we make a resolve to stand for Christ, be bold for him, never deny the name, and to fear God more than we fear man. Let's pray. And Mark, I'm going to have it close us with just one song. If that's all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you for this day, God. But I ask, Father, whatever words were spoken this morning, if I've spoken any words in a, in a way and in a tone that was incorrect and wrong, God, forgive me of my sin and, Lord, correct my words. But God, I pray that your word would emerge and that your truth would infiltrate our hearts and, God, that you would speak into our lives so that we can be believers like Paul and like Peter and like John and like our own Lord Jesus Christ, who fear you and who love you more than we love man and we fear man. Oh God, I pray, Father, that we would be people who love you so much that when the world reviles us, that we won't react in that flesh and in that anger and try to spit back ugly arguments, but instead that we would rest and hope and trust in you, treat people with respect and honor, allow your Holy Spirit to fill us, and then to speak wise words, wisdom that befuddles mankind, wisdom they may not even accept, and just speak and live. And if it gets violent, we accept whatever your will is upon our lives. God, help us to be not so ignorant about what goes on in our nation, that we ignore little precedents that may begin to erode our freedom. God, our forefathers didn't come to this nation to simply let it all wash away a couple hundred years later. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would turn our hearts toward you, help us to fear you. If we don't fear you, there's something wrong in our hearts. Help us, God, to fear you. God, increase and stoke our love for you. If we don't love you, Lord, there's something even worse in our hearts. And so, God, I pray this morning that we would be believers totally sold out for you, that we would treat our opposition with honor, respect, and that you would get great glory from Harvins. And God, as I talk about our opposition, it isn't nothing compared to the opposition of people around the world. Right now, Lord, I pray that you'd comfort the pain of those who are being tortured right now. Being tortured and being told, all you have to do is deny the name. All you have to do is deny the name. God, give them comfort. Give them resilience. 
Give them resolve. Help them endure. God, for the children who are being separated from their parents. God, give them comfort. Encourage them right now, Lord. God, for churches that are right now meeting in caves, Lord, may their joy ascend to heaven because their joy isn't based upon their circumstances like ours so often is in America. So God, I just love you and thank you and pray, Lord, you stir in our hearts to pray all day today at our, at our lunch tables, at our dinner tables, in our quiet times, and as we go to bed, may we lift up the persecuted church and ask you, Father, to be with them. And God, we'd ask for all persecution to be eliminated. But God, we know as we read the book of Revelation in chapter 6 that you say there is a number of those who are to die for their faith before Jesus comes back. So God, we say, come Jesus, come. And if we have to be in that number, then so be it, Lord. So be it, we pray in Jesus' name.